Welcome to the Doing Effect. My name is Tom Mitchell, and I'm a professional rugby sevens player and Olympian. And on this podcast, I'm going to explore the worlds of people who are truly making the most of their days. We will be going behind the curtain to listen to the stories, lessons, and lives of people doing great things to hear how they live out the doing effect. This podcast is brought to you by Days Brewing, alcohol-free beer for people who want to make more of their most precious commodity, time. Brewed in Scotland, their 0% lager and pale ale are available on their website and 2% of sales are donated to mental health initiatives. Listeners can use the code DOING15 for 15% off their first order at daysbrewing.com. Today I chat to Dan Lowes, a former RAF pilot and executive officer of the world-famous Red Arrows. Him and I got chatting over lockdown and quickly fell into rabbit holes of conversation about things like career, performance and the concept of perfection. So naturally it's led to this moment where I'm excited to share some more of this conversation with you. Dan takes us through how he made sure he would live out his childhood dream. We find lots of common ground around the demands of a performance environment and how to access that optimal place in your mind, both as an individual and working in a team. We also explore what mental toll there can be in an environment where you're flying at hundreds of miles an hour and the margin for error is virtually nothing. I love chatting to Dan about other concepts too, our identity, the perception of what's achievable and whether doing an extraordinary job makes you an extraordinary person. Whilst few of us will understand what it feels like to fly in a fighter jet, I think the life lessons Dan shares are relatable for each and every one of us. Dan, so thank you very much for giving up some time today. Uh, I really like the fact that this has kind of come about through what I feel is very much a lockdown friendship, introduced to one another via a mutual friend, had a couple of conversations on Zoom, um, and I feel like we're the, this is a lovely example of where you can feel like you really know someone quite well without actually having met them. Um, so off the back of that, agreeing to come on and do this, thank you very much. I'm really excited. Well, mate, thank you for having me. Anyway, I, I agree. You know, we obviously have a mutual friend with Burnsy who um, yeah, I've reached out to about some aspects of what I'm trying to talk about with the background I come from and he linked me to you. So yeah, some, some good chats downrange and, and here we are. But yeah, it's amazing though, isn't it? Like considering that totally different backgrounds in a way in terms of elite sport versus like a military background or you know totally different uh, disciplines I'd say but yeah yeah just from those conversations you had like connect they connect on so many levels in terms of just the way in which you know that's the stuff we're going to talk about today the way we like prepare the way in which you go about your mindset your approach and stuff so yeah mate it's been like the two three chats we've had have been awesome well on that topic of things we have in common We've both ended up pursuing something that we're passionate about in life. I've heard you say that you wanted to be a pilot since you were five years old. How did you go from there to putting, making your passion a reality? Uh, it's all the things that I guess you hear about else yeah, in other places. You think, oh, that's a bit, that's a bit cheesy or that's a bit corny. But I, I genuinely just had a pure belief it was going to happen for me. Uh, I didn't feel like there was any other option. Um, I know there were other options, but in my mind, I truly 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 hand on heart believe that's where I was going and um the, I was at school all I would talk about is becoming a fighter pilot I'm going to be a pilot I'm going to do this this is where I'm going to go and yeah you could peel that back to yeah 
five years old. You know, I, I was born in Hong Kong, grew up abroad. So in terms of being a fighter pilot, there weren't fighter pilots there. You know, there weren't fighters flying around the sky that I looked up and were impressed by, like, you know, maybe some regions of the UK might have. Um, but I had a dad who was ex-military, who was an airline pilot. Now he had friends who had been fighter pilots. He used to listen to their stories. It would captivate, you know, it captured my imagination, sorry. And, and I'd dream up these you know, scenarios and I could visualize myself in a cockpit and I can see myself doing these things that I thought would be fulfilling and satisfying as a, as a life achievement. Yeah. And that kind of just stayed with me. And that was born at five, six, seven, eight, nine years old. You know, I used to chat about that barbecues and come back to the UK at summer and go to air shows and see jets be like, that's it. That is exactly what my dreams look like. Uh, just, I just harvested them, you know, and we, we talk about all sorts of stuff, but there was that visualization of, I used to pitch myself sat in a cockpit. I even used to envisage what kind of friends I would have on a squadron and what we would do with our life outside of flight. It just, I just lived it and breathed it from a child. And I went, right, that's where I'm going. I think that's, it is an amazing thing. And when I'm listening to you talk about that visualization, I can relate because, and then maybe it's easier for people to relate around sport because I think you hear a lot of young particularly probably young boys, but hopefully more and more young girls as well, saying, I want to play for England when I grow up, and whether that's rugby or football, whatever, the big sports. And that was me. And to an extent, that is where it starts. But how many people are able to carry it through? It's difficult to not deviate from that path. Um, is it? Or it is for a lot of people. I guess, I, I don't know, because I, I didn't really hang out with five-year-olds who wanted to be fighter pilots, <laughs> you know, and I, 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 I've met lots of people, you know, when I, when I um, joined the Air Force, there was no one from my hometown, there was no one, you know, within probably 50 miles of where my folks lived or where I grew up, so they weren't from the same kind of backgrounds as me, you know, my best friend, I was, as I say, born, grew up abroad, I, when I moved to the UK at 13, I lived in a town called Weybridge in Surrey, down in the um, southeast of the UK. My best mate from the Air Force uh, is from Carlisle. You know, the absolute opposite end of the country, geographically, probably that you can get almost, you know, from the southeast to the northwest. But we harvest that same dream as kids. And there we were at 19 years old, stood outside, you know, this RAF base, trying to become officers and become fighter pilots. So, yeah, I, I, it's hard to describe that from other people, but the people that I ended up working with and being with for those 16, 17 years I was in the Royal Air Force for, not many of them accidentally got there. Uh, being able to hold on to something that which is probably born quite early, you know, in our lives and being able to build on that. You know, it's not like you have a, I guess you have a small fire when you're young and it's how you can actually build that fire up to be something really powerful rather than have it extinguished, which I, I sense is the case with, with some people. Um, and you must have had people come and try and, pour water on your flames at some point. I mean, being aiming to be a fighter pilot is kind of, you know, it is a bit childish. <laughs> and I mean that with all due respect, Dan. Do you, did, do you recall having times where people came to you and said, come on, mate, like, that's all well and good, but it's time to grow up and, and think about getting a proper job? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, in fact, there is a funny saying uh, in, in the aviation world that the saying goes, you know, a child's being asked what they want to do, and they say, when I grow up, I want to be a, fight, uh, a pilot and the response is you can't do both. It was only really at GCSE A-level time. There was a thing we did at school. I, did you have this where as you started to become more trusted and more mature, I guess, the um, the parent-teacher evenings. I haven't, I haven't reached that point yet. I'm still waiting for <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> right. So there's a point where you had to go with your parents to, parent, like, to the parent-teacher meetings. Did you have that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I will never forget. Now, he ended up being 
a friend actually after school, but I will never forget one of my teachers saying to me and my mum, it's about time Dan started taking his education seriously. He needs to start focusing on what university he went, he wants to go to, what subjects he wants to study and start giving up on this whimsical idea that he'll be one of the few that ever makes it to be a Royal Air Force fighter pilot. And I was sat with my mum. And it's funny because when I think back to that moment, I, I see it in a, I, I, I laugh at it rather than go, oh, that really hurt. And because as he was saying it, I was like, how can you be such a clever person and not realise that's where I'm going? I'm still amazed at the kind of level of your unwavering belief. I should say, by the way, that when you're at school, like I was, and you want to be a professional rugby player, the, the, there's not the crossover in the grades in like doing well in, <laughs> yeah. in the grades. Like, uh, it's it's a, probably a tougher argument to stay strong to. Um, How old were you when you had that? When you had that thought? When you thought, do you know what? I'm I'm pretty good with the ball here. Or yeah, I've got quite fast feet. Or you know, I've got. I've got a tactician's mind and it, it's best placed on the rugby field. When was that that you realised that I've got something that I can take a long way? Uh, probably, probably 15, 16, really. Um, I mean, at that age and for a long time after that, huge number of doubts and a huge amount of self-doubt um, went with that. But there was something in me that really wanted to do it. And actually, funny enough, recently, uh, my dad dredged up an old article that I'd written for the the school magazine which was about it was entitled my passion and it was about wanting to play rugby um and that being the only thing that I could really attach to I'd sort of forgotten that I felt like that at that age um but in a similar now I hear you talking about it there was obviously something in me that had a belief that I, that I could do it at that age um but it's interesting when you're talking about it because it's not just the belief it's not just this kind of intangible thing inside you you went to the steps of working out right, I need this number of GCCs, I need this number of A-levels, I need to, I imagine you, you, you took that even further, I need to pass this test, this test. So you, you, you tracked it out. So it wasn't just the case, we're not trying to say the lesson is just have the belief and it'll work out for you. You put the practical steps in place as well, right? Yeah, I, I, I designed a path that was in keeping or parallel with my belief. So, you know, the, the Royal Air Force weren't going to turn up to my school and say, excuse me, is Daniel Lowe's here because we've got a cockpit for him over here. Yeah, there was the belief that it was going to happen for me, but I fully had to I fully had to align my journey to do that. As you say, I, right, so what's the next step? The next step is five GCSEs. You know, I got 10, not not great ones, but I, I, I got what I needed. Yeah, then I went off into do my ASs, my A-levels, because I needed two A-levels. So I got, you know, I got three. So like, that's all great. I don't need a degree. So why, why for me am I going through a process that's going to take me, it's going to enhance me as a person. I understand that going to university, the life skills that come with that, the, you know, learning at a higher education, uh, educational level, uh, making more varied friends from all different backgrounds, uh, everything that university provides people other than just uh, a bit of paper at the end to say you passed the course. You know, I, I appreciate that would have added benefit to my life. But why was that different from being on a fighter squadron? Why was that going to be different from learning to fly airplanes with people from all around the country who are, who've signed up to serve their country, but in, in pursuit to, to be a fighter pilot. Now that's another interesting one to talk about is serving country versus being a fighter pilot. And I think it was be a fighter pilot, serve the country in my mind. Yeah. Rather, you know, people talk about the military being, you know, they, yeah, they walk out the door to do it and, and to serve our country, wherever that must be. And that's fine. And I, that was something I heartedly agree with. 
but I wasn't going, how can I serve my country? Oh, I could do it as a fighter pilot or else I'd be like, right, if I don't make a fighter pilot, maybe I could become a Royal Marine or maybe I could go and, you know, serve in the army as a tank, tank commander or something. Yeah, you know, it was fighter pilot. That was it. It was the job. Then came, then came the, the idea of service after that. But I had to design how to get there. And there was, you build up, don't you? You have your aim, you set your goals and then something that actually reads across quite well into the job. And it'd be interesting to see how you guys do this in your setup. Like what's the aim? The aim is to do this. So, right, these are the objectives that I need to do. And if I can tick these objectives off, I will have achieved my aim. And so that was GCSEs, that was A-levels, that was joining the Air Force at 19 years. I actually got in at 18 and then I joined a couple of days after my 19th birthday. Um, you know, then it's like, right, there's officer training. You've got to do that. So that's that's your first three, four years mapped out. Now, now you're 19 and a half. What are you going to do now? Well, now you need to get into this course. When you're on that course, you need to perform to this level because only the first so many percent on that one course will go to be a fighter pilot. The rest will go off and fly other airplanes. Next course, only a percentage of that will pass. Then it goes all the way through, through five years of flying training. And then at the end of it, only a percentage of that are even allowed to fly jets that only have one seat, which is the airplane you want to fly. So how are you going to get there? And you, I, I mapped that all back. I was aged 16, 15, 16, to the point that um, you mentioned before about the article your dad um, brought out. Yeah, I, I actually, not too long ago, was at home and there's, um, there's a picture book of the Red Arrows, you know, a, a photographic journal of uh, a season. And I opened it up and I completely forgot about this. And in the front is this, uh, so you talked about that uh, uh, politics teacher who mentioned you give up on this whimsical idea. Well, obviously like that, that burnt somewhere because I ended up winning the, um, the politics prize for that, that educational year. I think it must've been AS level, right? And um, part of it was to go and, I'm sure it was to buy a book that would enhance you in that subject. So you got given a book voucher. <laughs> Um, and it had to be presented at the end of year assembly. And I went and bought a Red Arrows book that he had to present me. <laughs> in the, you know, all these other people who were doing really well are off to Oxford and Cambridge with their, you know, their books that were going to help them in their studies. And I, I walked off with this Red Arrows picture book. Uh, and I still got it with the thing at the front signed by the teacher saying, you know, politics prize. Uh, listening to the, the demands of your environment, the inability to fail really um, on, on all fronts, not just from a testing point of view in terms of achieving and progressing through the ranks, but in, a, in the reality of what you're doing when you're flying jets at, I mean, how fast do those jets go? Uh, yeah, well, if you wanted to go as fast as you could, you're talking about uh, 1,300 miles an hour. If you're talking about, right. I mean, that's, yeah, if you're talking about cruising, you're cruising at 450 miles an hour and then you're working any between that, that um, you know, eight, 850 mile an hour speed bracket. So for, for most of us who never will never get to experience what that feels like, I mean, that's fast and there's no margin for error. So in a very real sense, you cannot fail in that environment because the cost is, as you've mentioned, um, ultimate in some cases. Now, speaking from my own personal experience, one thing that I've found difficult about professional sport is the demands of, ha of, of wanting to be, having to be perfect, getting things right all the time. Now, sport, obviously, it's a game. And actually, part of the improvement and people are really recognising now is, is failing and, and the value in that. Um, but I think it would be really demanding to be in your environment where you don't have that freedom. It's not a game, actually, because the costs are much higher. I mean, for you, what 
was the mental toll like? Was there a mental toll? And how did you, if there wasn't, how did you man- manage your mind through those pressures of, of not being able to fail and the events you're talking about, about around crashes and worst case scenarios? I, I feel lucky that I failed as much as I did in terms of, you know, I come down from a trip and the instructor said, that wasn't good enough. Like, I can't, I can't put you onto the next trip because you haven't hit the right, you, know, you haven't displayed to me uh, the right kind of technical ability to pass that trip or, you know, your knowledge wasn't up to scratch here or, um, you know, and, and I'm talking right from the very, you know, we go back to those school days, A-level days. Yeah, I applied to the Royal Air Force, turned up 17. I didn't get in. So I spent a year on building sites during the day as a labourer and then Domino's delivery driver in the evening because I thought, right, well, i got to wait another year. By the way, Domino's delivery driver, second best job I've ever had to be in a fighter pilot. That is an awesome job. Um, and then... Were you, you, know, de- were you delivering at the speed that you were... I should have been. I should have been. Like, yeah, they were hotter than when they came out the oven. You know, that was just, that was just <laughs> the service I provided. Um, yeah, and then I failed a trip here and it came back for me. It failed a trip here, came back for it, failed a trip even through to getting to the red arrows, you know, I, um, I applied, I went through an application process. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't myself. I didn't, I didn't hit what they wanted in an applicant and I, and I got washed out. Sorry, mate, you're not good enough. Try again next year. Next year, something else happened for actually it was outside of my control. That's fine. You can kind of just roll with those. And then I got into my third attempt. So in terms of failure, had I not failed in terms of having to redo flights on each course throughout my career, I wouldn't have built up that resilience and self-belief to to deal with it. Yeah, you know, everyone. There is nothing nice about failing. Yeah, there's that awful moment. Yeah, for example, like when we go through a speed camera, you when it flashes, yeah, that kind of moment that your whole body just sinks to the bottom of your stomach, like your chest falls. You just like, oh, yeah, you failed. That kind of moment where you kind of freeze, panic, you don't know what to do, and but the more you do it, the more it's you kind feel- of that immediate immediate feeling of wishing things were different yeah like, i just like, oh, if, like if i, oh, I wish that hadn't happened yeah exactly yeah. like i can imagine I, I it'd be interesting i guess it, it, from your world you know i wish i just hadn't thrown that pass or yeah if i'd just taken half a step to the right i'd, I'd have nailed him i'd imagine yeah the margins yeah, and are sometimes so... those moments can last with you for a long long time a long the, time the training is to try and let them go in that moment i guess yeah that, that compartmentalize even more important when you're flying compartmentalizing yeah and and but you only get that through experience of failing. You know, it, those nights where I'm sure you've had them after games that haven't gone your way or moments in a game that haven't gone your way and you're lying in bed and you can't sleep because you're so emotionally attached to what's happened hours ago. Even though now it's actually inconsequential. Like we're not, like I'd be lying in bed, or I'm not actually flying an airplane now. I'm not failing in this moment. You know, tomorrow the sun will rise. I'll have breakfast and we'll go on with stuff. Nothing's happened, you know, um, and it's learning to do that. And the more you fail, the better you get, I found, I got at responding to those, the quicker I turn myself around and the higher, you know, the higher my performance would become at the next time I saw it. And that was good because that also meant that I started not being scared to fail, but I understood it as well. So, um, and what that led to is exactly what you've just talked about is compartmentalization. Like I could, I could do something, it would affect me because obviously it's natural to be affected by it. But what I got good at is very quickly dropping it and focusing at the next event. And it's something that took me all the way through my career until even being in the Red Arrows where I tell the guys coming through, right, you cannot fly the perfect display. It's, it, it is impossible. It might just be me saying that, but I promise you it is impossible. You know, different weather each day, different cloud structure, different types of wind, different turbulence, different display site. They don't look the same. 
something will distract you, something will put you off your flow and it won't be great. But if you're doing a loop or a roll, I could promise you, because I've done this, if you keep going, oh, that was, that was awful, you're still going to be awful five rolls later or five loops later. You have to, even though you're moving at you know, 350, 400 miles an hour, you have to go, right, boom, that's happened. That's you know, half a mile behind me now. The next event I do will be the best one I've ever done in my life. And so I applied that throughout my whole career. Now, we talked about before about the ultimate, the ultimate um, consequence could be that you lose your life. I can't hand on heart say that I've never once strapped into an airplane and thought I'm not coming back in. Um, I don't think it's arrogance and I don't think it's the fact that I feel untouchable or you know, you, you, I won't come unstuck because I saw some very, very talented aviators and some very, very good friends who I had the utmost respect to who they were come unstuck. You know, and if you start thinking, well, that will never happen to me. You know, there's a saying it's for something that's happened. It's those that have and those that will. Uh, you know, and if you don't listen to those that have, you will be the next. You know, if you don't listen to their errors, if you don't listen to their mistakes, if you don't listen to how they got out of something and you think it will never happen to me, that will become you eventually. And it's applying that mindset. So, so Dan, I think that's where we're a little bit different because I actually went into that thought process in order to engage with it and kind of come out the other side and be able to carry it with me. So... And, and this might sound extreme to people because I'm only talking about rugby. I'm not talking about flying at hundreds of miles an hour in fighter jets, which everyone knows is dangerous. But people don't really necessarily think of rugby as being that dangerous. But all it took for me was to see some bad injuries, to have a couple of bad injuries and see some people, you know, and some public stories where the worst case scenario did occur. And it is incredibly rare, but that was enough for me to have to be like, well, actually, I'm going to have to engage with that potential reality that... that you know, bad stuff can happen. Um, and, but it, I, it's not detrimental to me now. I think it would be if you, didn't, if you don't process it. But I processed it, understood the facts around how infrequently bad stuff happens. Um, and also understanding that you, we have such a little amount of control around things that happen to us in day-to-day -day life anyway, really. Um, you know, and we talk about this when we're in the build-up to tournaments. We had a guy at the last Olympics in Rio and we'd gone through a grueling selection process to get to the point of, of being selected. You know, a huge number of ferocious contacts, some tough tournaments against opposition, got to the point of being selected. And the guy got injured and he won't mind me talking about it, a guy called Alex Davis, incredibly um, impressive individual. And he got injured in the last gym session before he went into the village. And he wrote a freak accident in the gym, rolled his ankle in the gym, really bad injury. And it put him out. And we were saying, and I sort of, again, that plays in your mind, but you have to engage with it and think, I could, I could fall off the bus at the tournament just before the game, you know. Um, and that, it's that kind of disassociation from the consequences that, that actually helps me, um, which, is, which is interesting because it's sort of different from you. Hi, guys. Just want to interrupt the doing effect with good vibes from the last week. We've been released from three months of lockdown. For me, that's meant playing sport with friends every day. My body is feeling it now, but it's done absolute wonders for my whole mindset and attitude. Speaking to our customers in pubs and restaurants, I've also noticed so much excitement for being able to welcome everyone back on Monday. And we've been really busy hatching plans for the summer. 
We have some awesome news coming up. Keep following our socials and sign up to our mailing list to be the first to find out about that. In the meantime, I want to encourage everyone to turn off Netflix, close laptops and enjoy this newfound freedom, whatever that means for you and make the most of your days. Moving on to something a bit more, um, uh, I guess, sort of brass tacks. I don't often like asking people about their bad days because it sounds a bit negative, but I feel like it's really relevant with you because you can't, if you get out the wrong side of bed and you're not functioning all that well, and then you're getting in a, a jet and flying hundreds of miles an hour, it's probably not all that safe. So I'm just kind of asking whether you have things that you, and it, I guess it's, you know, to a smaller degree, same on a tournament day, you can't afford to be having a bad day, really. Well, you need to give yourself the best chance of having a good day. So do you have, I don't know, habits or routines or anything that you go to to get yourself in the zone, which is a phrase that I don't really like, but everyone knows what I mean. Yeah, I know, I know, I know what you mean, though. And yeah, there is definitely... Um place for that so i guess even before you arrive at entering the zone moment yeah it's preparedness isn't it you know so when you are having a bad day you could fall back on knowing knowing your stuff inside out so if i was to i put the frontline fighter pilot stuff aside for a minute and just focus on more of the um i i dare use the elite side of the flying in terms of the red arrows now for any other Royal Air Force pilot who, who may listen to this, I'm not saying that because some of the best pilots I've ever met were frontline fighter pilots. So they're never interested in the red arrow side of it. But I, I'll talk to you the process that maybe other people can relate to because they tend to see you know, the red arrows as what they are in terms of the you know, high performing display team environment. You know, but for every display, you know, there was a set routine. There was a set communications plan. There was a set number of seconds that you, you needed to move from one place to another. And you had to do that at exactly the same time as the other guy, or else you know you would be outside what we were known as a box, the protective bit of airspace around each airplane, so you don't clip each other. You know, if someone lost uh, control of their airplane elsewhere, or they had an issue that couldn't be there, you would have to come up with a backup plan. You'd run Plan B. There was no substitute. So, the point being is, there was a lot of preparation to do to get to that point. Not only was it seven months of flying and training camp, essentially. You had to know the rules. You had to know where you needed to be, what was expected of you as a team member and all this stuff. So by the time you even get in the zone, the fact that you prepared yourself so much, you know the flows like the back of your hand, you know the comp plan in your sleep. You could stop at any point and someone say, minute, one, five, we're in this maneuver. What's your call? What's your smoke plan? And you could roll it off your tongue straight away. It meant that when you were having a bad day, that was already ingrained in your mind. However, yes, getting into the zone. Yeah, there, there were so many. We had a thing called the bubble which once you're in the bubble, no one could, could enter it because the idea of someone entering your bubble gives that impression of being burst and all the rest of it. So you, know, you would go into a brief, a set brief. At that point, you were entering your bubble, the team's bubble, whatever it was going to be. And after that, no one could, could mess with you. No one could come up to you and go, oh, uh, just so you know, there's a phone call for you. Oh, by the way, uh, we've just had a... Unless it was something that was going to change the safety of the outcome, that was it. You were left in your bubble and people can come up to you and talk to you and you're like, I'm sorry, I'm in my bubble, leave me. And it sounds really pretentious, but it was a way in which you put a protective space around you from the moment it was like, right, here's the brief, let's go execute. I had a really, really good friend in, in the team guy called Chris Lyndon Smith, smithy as I knew him. He was pretty much my opposite number. When I was three, he was five. When I was five, he was four. When I was nine, he was eight. So we kind of paired up around the formation together. 
we'd always, you know, our, our process of getting ready where we would have a couple of practical jokes. We try and, for example, he was constantly trying to steal my helmet. So I was going to be late and, and all the rest of it, you know, we would just mess around with each other. What does the, what did that do? Do you think, what did that lightheartedness give you? Exactly that. It relaxed the tone. You know, the severity of what you're about to do, the level in which you're about to uh, perform to or get to requires such intense focus and dedication that I'm not saying we would have found it overwhelming, for example, but it could be overwhelming or you could find it quite a lot to take in all at once. And when I was when I first got there, it was like I'd get changed by myself. I'd walk to my jet. I didn't want to speak to anyone. I'd probably only look about a meter and a half in front of me on the tarmac till I got to the jet. Then I'd do my walk around. I'd get in the jet. I'd shut it, put the helmet on, right, I'm ready to go. Whereas I realized, actually, that wasn't where I want to be because I'm now, my trigger moment has happened 20 minutes before I need to be on my game. So I need to be prepared. I need to be focused. I need to not be distracted. But I need to peak at a certain point. And I'm peaking too early here in terms of my concentration and my preparedness. So... For me, it'd be like, well, I'd have a bit of a laugh with my opposite number, we'd walk out to the jets together. There'd be some time a banter from jet to jet as we were doing all our pre-flight checks. We'd get in, we'd leave our helmets to the last minute and then about 30 seconds, there's basically what we call a check-in. And let's say it's, uh, what's the time now? 10, 19. So the boss would say, right, we'll check the radios at 10, 20. And at 10, 20 to the second, the boss would shout, red check. And you'd be like, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, the whole way down as you were checking your radios to make sure that, you were serviceable and ready to go. We would put our helmets on with about 20, 30, you know, 15 seconds. The more experienced you got and the cockier you got, the later you put your helmet on, right? Um, but then as soon as that reds check came in, boom, that was it. And again, I don't want to celebritize it in any way whatsoever, if that's even a word. But, you know, you watch this um, Drive to Survive on Netflix, the Formula One drivers, and we were nothing like those guys but the one thing i do see that i feel i have in common is you know just before a race when they're on the start grid and they're drinking their drinks they got the music in they're having a bit of a laugh with the mechanics some guys you see in the in the car already some guys you see and at the last moment they get in but if you watch they it's almost like their eyes change when the helmet comes on and the second my helmet came on it transported me into a completely different world and at that point it was like right i'm good to go this is I'm in the zone. And that was it. And, you know, then the jet would start up around you. That came with the own kind of sensation of the jet would just buzz around you, it creak and moan and slowly start up and then boom, off I go. Amazing process. Really interesting. What you talked about not trying to celebritize it. Do you think people who end up in extreme roles, you've already mentioned, I mean, how many people ended up doing the, the top jobs that you've done in the, in the Air Force? Uh, oh. Percentage of population. Oh, yeah, I'd be guessing, but quite a low percent. I mean, there's, what, 150 Typhoon pilots in the Air Force right now? Um, if if that, there's so, only nine Red Arrows. Yeah, so not many make it. With that not in mind, do you think people are born to play out these sort of extraordinary roles and, and jobs? Or do you think anyone can do that? It's about how you nurture yourself, how you develop how you grow the latter the latter i'd say what do you think you, do you think that's fair yeah yeah i'm with you i think m more so than than the former i think it's a really interesting part of our sort of society though isn't it i think that we do hold people up who achieve certain things or do certain things as being born to be that way or that somehow they were always destined to, to deliver that and that you know the majority of the population couldn't do that now there are some things where Obviously, physical gifts are what they are, and mm -hmm. they 
determine it to an extent. But I think what you've said at the beginning around the belief and how that can actually foster, you know, a drive, a focus, a determination is, is much more of a factor. I think I'm certainly with you on that one. One element that I'm semi-familiar with around the Red Arrows particularly uh, is the art of the debrief. It's something we heard about because as a high-performance team, that sounds like it's a massive part of what allows you to deliver and hold those high standards of one another. Can you tell us some of the elements that are involved in that? One of the things that we had is that there was never any point in making the same error twice. If you, if you knew it was there, why would you go out and do it again? You, you, we appreciate you could never, as I mentioned earlier, you could never fly the, the, the most perfect display. It was impossible. Well, it was for me anyway. But, but as soon as we came back, we'd go straight into a debrief. First thing we did, we'd have what we called a hot debrief. So essentially like you see some of the teams do now. And I, I don't know if you guys, I haven't seen you guys recently, but get into like a huddle, like even at halftime before they go into the changing room, they have that huddle. And I guess that's like the captain's hot debrief, I guess, before the manager gets hold of them. Um, very similar with what we did. We, we would... As we parked up, the boss would say, right, let's all meet at three's jet. Let's all meet at five's jet, whatever. And we'd all huddle around the wing and we'd have a quick, right, this is how I saw it. Two, three, four, five. And we give each individual in that team, uh, within the team, sorry, a chance to say what they thought they saw, what they thought went well, what they thought went wrong. So that actually by the time we got to the video debrief, a lot of it had been done or the boss was already looking for four being slightly wide on the tornado roll, for example, or... Um, that wasn't even a move. I made that up, so that's embarrassing. But there we go. Yeah, that kind of <laughs> No one knows. No one None knows. Know. No one knows. Um, and so the point being is that we gave each other a chance to bring forward our errors first because that, that's quite important because if you ask someone how they thought they did before you tell them, you, you get a really good gauge of their understanding of their performance. And you go, oh, actually they have no idea how far off they are because you don't know what you don't know. But Or you go, ah, I thought it had gone wrong because of this. What I hadn't seen was moments before you had been put off your stride because this had happened. And then you can slowly build it up. Whereas I've just spent 10 minutes being pissed off at you for being shit. But that's because I didn't realise that actually you weren't being. Your, your position, your environment, your universe was being affected by something else, which meant that you couldn't perform. And now that I understand that, actually, you did a very, very good job there. Yeah, or, or vice versa. Perception. So much of, of team conflict comes from different perceptions of a situation, different perspectives. Absolutely. So you have to understand what they are, right? Yeah, and if you, could, I mean, if you can't understand it, then, then you, it's, it, you're never going to progress. And one thing that I lacked, which I'm getting better at now, actually on reflection, and now I'm, I'm doing a bit more of a deep dive into performance and some other work I'm doing elsewhere. And one thing that I... I wasn't so uh, developed in was empathy. And you know, and if you can then start bringing that into the debrief and understanding, then you can get more out of your team. But that's a, a, another completely different um, uh, sector altogether. But for us, we'd had that hot debrief. We'd then go and get, I talked about that bubble. The bubble would be popped at that point, you know, because people want to meet you. People want to talk to you. Uh, you. You had to go straight to an engagement somewhere. Or, you know, there was more to just flying in the Red Arrows. You were going to go off and meet people as an ambassador for something or attend some type of presentation or something like that you know it was very rare that you would then go straight to debrief but we would always always debrief before the next the next flight now what we do is we would put the tape on 
and we would play back. Now, we'd have a quick reminder of what everyone had brought to the table in terms of what they thought their personal errors were. Sometimes you could discount them and say, actually, no, mate, you thought you played it wrong there, but you played a blinder. Well done. It was the boss's job at the end then to stand up or the captain you know, in a team to then surmise, go, guys, look, yeah, there's a few things here we need to work on. Um, you know, each individual take three points from that trip. They're your next three points going to the next trip. Because if you take 50 points, you're never going to, you're going to be overwhelmed with errors that you need to get better at. So let's just work at the big three in each person. But overall, you know, that was a great performance. It's got us to where we wanted to go, achieved our aim or guys, that was awful today. I'm never stepping out the door with you guys again, unless you work on these things and promise me you'll never let that happen again. Now, that's the end of the debrief uh, and that surmised it, but it wasn't for us to say what was good and what, and what worked. It was to us to say why we didn't perform to the highest of our ability at any point. The thing I'm always interested in is it sounds like a very pragmatic and practical process to go through, but we are human beings. We're unpredictable. We're emotional beings. So there must have been examples where there was fallout from that. People flare up or push back or leave those meetings thoroughly pissed off and hating everyone in the room. It's about having an understanding of where you are and who you are. You know, that people haven't accidentally got to that point. And when you get there, there is a mountain to climb. You know, people get to the base camp of Everest. There's still Everest to climb. Do you know, just because you got there, you're not, you're not now the hiker. If you rocked up going, yeah, we're just going to climb Everest, then, you know, I'd imagine you're pretty... You're pretty dead in the water so you need to understand that this is a technical job not many people in the world have achieved it and to get to the end product which you probably will never ever get to is going to be an absolute journey and, and total effort now what comes with high performers is that fine line between confidence and ego and arrogance they all kind of mix in together don't they so one of the things we did to take that away from people was when we walked into a briefing room it was very obvious when that debrief was going to start. Um, and now we wouldn't always be able to debrief in a set room. It might be in the back of a bus on a laptop uh, on the way to, to the hotel, or it might be you know a quiet part of the lobby in a hotel at six in the morning before wheels to go and get to the jet somewhere. Who, who knows? But we always had the ability on a laptop and a look projector to debrief. Um, and wherever that was, it was very obvious that the debrief is starting now um, to the point that we had a thing it was the bell. And like, you know, if I was to say to you, if you were in a pub and you hear a bell, what does that mean? Last orders. There you go. Boom. Exactly. You have an emotional attachment to that. You know, a lot of people rush to the bar to get it. But... I struggle to remember that. It's been a while since I've <laughs> been in a pub. Um, but, but one thing is the bell. If you hear a bell, it's last orders. So we had one guy's job. I'm not kidding you. This is a Red Arrows pilot. When we were on the building, he, there was a bell in the corridor that he would ring. And that meant one minute to debrief, one minute to brief, one minute to an event. And that, anchored everyone to that point if we were on the road and we didn't have a bell i'm not kidding you it was his job to shout out ding-a-ling right so one minute before a brief debrief wherever we were this guy would shout ding-a-ling boom i got one minute to put stuff down right now we're starting a debrief so now what we've done is we created ourselves an environment in which we are doing nothing else but focusing on the debrief and oh by the way in the debrief names are banned so there's not Mitch, that was awful, or damn, that was that was shit. It was nine, you're wide there. Three, you need to put a bit more power on a bit earlier there. Um, right, eight, yeah, nice job there. I can see that someone like was a bit long sat on you, but you managed to hold it. You know, that that um a lot of people talk about fault versus responsibility. It's like that wasn't your fault, but the responsibility that you had to hold it so it didn't look awful was great. But we took away names. And even though you were attached to that number. 
it did take away that personal side of stuff. So that ego dent of being, Dan, you're awful versus nine, that wasn't good enough. It, it went. And it sounds silly because you think, yeah, but that's still my number. That's still who I am. But having been there, lived it and done it, taking away the personal side of the name and just putting your position to the performance meant that a lot of people were far, well, we found people were far more open to being able to take that criticism uh, and, to, and to move on from it. If people didn't have, if they didn't agree with it, you'd be like, um, after, there was also a level of respect, you know, things that were in there. You, you also had the attributes of being an officer in the military as well. So, you know, there was a lot of things that we held close to us in terms of having respect, having manners and all the rest of it, you know. Um, you would get fined in terms of like 50p or a pound in the morning if you didn't say, if you saw the, your team member in the morning and didn't say good morning and then their name. If you just said, oh, mate, they'd be like, uh, good morning they'd stop you you would then have to say good morning then you could move on and it created this culture of having manners and respect and what that meant was after a debrief if you really thought this guy was going in on you or you really thought the point was invalid you didn't sit there and just have this slagging match and if that ever ever happened which hand on heart can't remember but if it did it would get shut down by the other team members very quickly then afterwards you'd be like right guys there's the laptop sit down work out why you guys saw that from a different angle and then you know gentlemen they would work it out or as teammates they'd work it out as friends they'd work it out and go ah okay i get your point now thank you and then we move on that's really interesting uh, and it all seems like it's the, the method behind it is psychological kind of little tricks to enable your mind to be in the right place at the right time so the bell which i love um is kind of priming your brain to be in its sort of analytical place rather than it's you know, rather than being in your amygdala and your emotional brain and, and all that stuff that doesn't allow you to think clearly in those moments. And it's the same when you're talking about putting your helmets on earlier. You know, there's a trigger there that, that's telling your brain to function a certain way for the next period of time. Dan, I've been really excited hearing about a load of stuff that's, we've talked a lot about your past, but I'm also really excited for your future and what's happening now, your kind of post uh, Red Arrows Air Force career. And one thing we touched on identity, I love the fact that one of the things you're doing now, which kind of seems at odds with a fairly masculine, high adrenaline environment, is you're now writing children's books. And I just think that's one of the coolest things. Yeah, it's a side project and, and it's still very much work in progress. Um, but yeah, I'd like to take my experiences and, you know, the things that we've talked about today. Yeah, you know, we've just touched on debriefing there. Yeah, you know, we've just touched on belief. We've touched on designing the life that everything we talk to today, you know, I talk about it being a five-year-old child. Um, why not have those, those, why not have entertaining children's books that, that have those values that take you on a journey through a character who has to, you know, has some troubles in their life or has adventures they want to go on to, but there's adversity that they're going to have to show resilience to get through, or, you know, there's going to be events that they're going to fail at until they sit down with their friends and debrief essentially and work out how they can get better as a group of, of, of kids they're not going to achieve these certain things they want to do you know and, and as I say it's very very much work in progress it's it's a lot of work to do but I would love to be able to create what we've talked about as you know 30 year olds who've come from probably 15 16 years in a professional high performing career why can't we transpose that into and to get those little minds going get these beliefs in kids so that you know when they get to the point that we started forming these ideas they're, they're already there they're already charged they're already equipped with these tools to so be like yeah of course that's because um that's what you do uh, and away you go and yeah if i could if i could get that into some type of book to to get those messages to kids that would be amazing because it's gone from 
always wanting to do it myself to being able to do it. Then I kind of had a bit of a, I'm 34, 35, and I've achieved my childhood dream. What's next? Well, actually, it's now to help others achieve their dreams. And if there's anything you can do for that, then I think that could be the most, there can't be anything more rewarding. Can't wait for those, mate. All the best. I think that's a, an amazing kind of motivation to do something like that. That's really cool. Um, so oh, we could keep talking all day. This really plays into my interest, my biases, all these conversations around the performance side of it. And I think there's such an interesting psychology, the teamwork as well. Um, but I think it's time to, to wrap up and ask the questions that I like to ask everyone on the doing effect. And the first one of those is if you could take a case of day's beers and all your favorite people, whoever they may be, your friends or your family, and you can go anywhere in the world, sit down and enjoy a case of beers with them. Where would you go? Do you know what? I would take my family and friends and find a gorgeous secluded beach on the west coast of Barbados. And I'd get there for about half four in the evening. So there's a little bit of sun left. And then as the sun starts setting, crack open a cold case of beers and just enjoy the moment. I think, you know, sand on your feet, beautiful sunset, listen to the waves crashing over. That would be amazing. So you'd, you'd definitely go somewhere where your feet were on the ground rather than however many miles up in the air. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then lastly then, mate, just to wrap up, what would you like to cheers to today? Yeah, after the year we've had, I mean, it's a big personal change for me in terms of leading in the military and my first year in civilian life. But the year that the whole world has had, our freedoms, our liberties, our the way in which we want to express ourselves have all been taken from us, you know, just to cheers life and happiness and to embrace those that are closest to you, enjoy the moments with the people that mean the most to you. Uh, and just enjoy those moments of life that we get to spend with people before that they're taken from us, which we've seen in the last year can happen very quickly. Amazing. Love that, Dan. Cheers to that. Mm -hmm.